0: Hello, and welcome to ArenaCraft, a podcast dedicated to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I am your host. Thanks for joining us again. And this week, we're going to dive right into Ikoria in Standard. And we're going to take a look at some decks. And also just discuss a couple of key cards, which are going to be really important in the meta game. And also we're going to talk a little bit just about the broader implications of Ikaria in Magic. There's been a lot of rumblings, uneasy rumblings going around with this set. So today's guest and I will get into a bit of that as well. I just wanted to thank you guys for bearing with me over this last month. It's been probably the busiest, one of the busiest months of my entire adult life, had multiple big projects that I've had to deliver on in my work life. And so it's been a little bit, I've been keeping up on the podcast, but it's been tough. So if you know, if you've noticed it coming out like a day late here or there, or just being a little rougher around the edges than it usually is. That's why I'm committed to keeping it up and it's just been very busy. So after after April, things are gonna smoothen out a little bit and hopefully should have a return to the polished and timely content that you have come to appreciate so and also i just wanted to remind you we're getting close to the end of the month i haven't been highlighting this as much because i've just been busy but we are getting close to the end of the month and that means as well that we're coming up on another contest giveaway so i just wanted to remind you that you can win a drawing for a 20 dollars gift card of your choice could be magic related could be for amazon could be for something else and the way that you do this is just by following us on one of our platforms. So that could be at ArenaCraft Pod on Twitter. That's also uh ArenaCraft Podcast on YouTube. Twitch, ArenaCraft Podcast, you can follow there. You can also join our Discord community, and there's always a link for that in the show notes. And finally, if you leave us an iTunes review, give you a little extra bump in the contest because those count so much. So if you've been listening to the show and you've been enjoying it and you've been a wallflower, I would just love it if you could show me your appreciation in one of those simple ways. It's a small thing to do and it makes a big difference for me. And it's just a way that you can support the show without giving me your money or even that much of your time. So thank you. I'll be announcing the winner of that right at the beginning of May. And with that out of the way, let's get into today's show and introduce today's guest. So today I'm excited to bring back a returning guest to the show. Actually, a very recent previous guest, but we had such a good time chatting last time and we had so much that we found we still had to talk about that I decided to reach back out to him to get him on the show again to talk about Ikoria with us. It is one of the the great players of the game, one of the great writers of the game, Danny West. How are you doing, my friend?
1: you flatter me. I'm doing even better now. I'm not, usually in, I'm not usually invited back most places. This is such an honor.
0: You caught such a fine groove the last time. We just, you know, we had to just come to revisit that. I'm happy to be back. <laughs> I felt like I needed someone whose the, the breadth of their opinions could match the breadth of this set. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if <laughs> so. I, I can't. I, I, mm, I'll do my best. All right, so today we're going to be just checking in on Ikaria. So it's actually been released now. We've had a chance to get our hands on it, at least digital hands on the digital cards. And so there's a lot going on. Now, if you've been plugged in at all to Magic Twitter or basically taking in any Magic content anywhere, you've probably already seen a number of hot takes by now about how bonkers this set is in any number of ways so we're going to be talking about that a little bit and covering that with Danny because Danny I know that you're a great you're a great student of the game you really like to get deep with mechanics you really like to think about the broad sweep of magic so we're going to kind of first of all we're going to place Icaria historically just a little bit and talk about what makes this set unique and then we're going to be talking about standard and just kind of checking in on some of the new archetypes and some of the new relevant cards So, okay, with all that out of the way, Danny, Ikoria is here. What are you thinking?
1: What am I thinking? Okay, so my goals in talking about Ikoria are to, I guess the the focus I want to have is on expressing sentiments that maybe align negatively with a lot of what people think, but I don't want to just give someone another magic player who likes to say things are bad or I, I don't want to just cry wolf here. Uh, The other side of that is I may give good substantial ammo to people who are like that. So if they listen to this and hear why I think some of these things, I'm afraid their reasoning may be uh, a little better in the future. So watch out if you suddenly see Ikoria haters having a lot better reasoned arguments on why this, (laughs) it might be an issue because you know, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to uh, uplift the, that contingent a little bit without just, Diving into the muck and getting angry or whatever, because that seems kind of silly.
0: Just upgrading um, the ammunition here.
1: Yeah, sounds good. yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'll 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 mutate it a bit. Okay, so <laughs> I think one of the the biggest concerns I have with Acoria as a product, as a magic set, as something that is released with the idea that it will serve some purpose now and serve some incidental purpose later. That's what magic sets do. They come out, they we get excited about them. We play with them for a few years. They go away. We, you know, we see them in passing when we're going through boxes or playing some other format, whatever. Ikoria has such an overabundance of both creative things, <laughs> um, I guess they're creative, uh, and mechanical space that is so crowded. Mutate is an exceptionally... Um, hard to grasp at first mechanic, even for veteran players. I think, I think that's shown, um, the, a lot of people seem fairly at odds with the promotional materials involving, uh, the Godzilla stuff. Um, I'm very sympathetic to that. And so I think it's a big confluence of a very divisive set because it has so much and it's taking so many swings that are very different than what magic sets typically do that I think it gives reasonable concern to the idea that a lot of what's going on in design and development right now is going on so far removed from like the ground of where magic games are happening, that it's a concern. And I'm not one to usually think that R&D is sort of out of touch with that. I think in general, through, especially if you look at the course of how long I've played magic, like by and large, even with the mistakes that land in standard or the developmental things. It wasn't that long ago uh, when Delver of Secrets was sort of an overly uh, present magic card in standard where Aaron Forsyth of wizards of the coast was a very forthright in saying we were really worried about birthing pod, which also ended up being a good, but he was very transparent about it. That feels so far from where we are now. I have no idea why the promotion for Ikoria looks like it, it like some of the advertisements um, where they list out like where you get certain cards and like what your rewards are for paying for certain things on arena or you know, all these sort of this sort of flow chart of what you get for paying what people in the marketing sphere, people who are very interested in making numbers go up and that's all that matters to them, they get involved in the creative and things get really distorted. And if that happens once in a while, that's okay. But Akoria is coming at a time where R&D is in just this year-after-year epidemic of cards having these emergent effects on tournament play that they don't foresee and they have to intervene on. Whenever you're in a situation where a system is too complex, you can't understand everything about it, you, you need to learn more so you can understand it, you need better data, nobody in their right mind thinks that the first thing you do is add more. And Ikoria has added so much more So it's an indication that I think that there are a a slew of problems that I think could become bigger problems down the road. Now, with all that said, I like playing with the Like, but I'm a 25-year Magic veteran or 22 years or whatever. Of course I'm going to like it because it gives me new problems, but there are other problems in a different sense, in the macro sense of Magic, that come out of that.
0: Well, let's talk about that kind of player experience for a moment because... That's something that I was really thinking about this set. We were discussing this a little bit earlier about how Arena has been like a kind of an ambassador for Magic. The client has been this huge new way for people to get into the game and play. And I think that's really awesome. And so in the face of that, it seems like a little bit of a head scratcher that like at a moment when we have arguably like one of the biggest influx of new players that we've maybe ever seen in the game. We're releasing these crazy gnarly sets like War of the Spark and Eldraine and now Ikoria, which some people are actually thinking might be one of the most complex Magic sets ever created. And it's certainly the most complex set that has been current during a time that I have been playing Magic. And so... Yeah, I I can definitely see that it might be just off-putting to be a new player coming in and being like, what the heck, like, how the heck does Mutate work? How the heck does a companion work? What is this? And having that happen when even established people who are playing the game are also like, yeah, I don't really know either.
1: Right, yeah. And it's happening in a set where, like, uh, I remember, I mean, it's been years and years, but I, I... it was at a time where duress and thought and all these cards were legal and standard at the same time, and I just had this notion of like discard is so abundant, or like targeted discard point, mm. you know, hand disruption mm. is so apparent that I wonder like how wild the game would be if both players in game two and three, knowing they both have all this hand disruption, if they could pick their own hand, would you pick cards that you want them to think you want, knowing they're going to go, it, you know, it's just mm. all these silly fun theoretical questions that come mm. out of it. But of course the end of that discussion was of course you can't let players be so have so much agency over their magic games that they just get to pick what cards are in their hand. But that I mean what is that, that's what that's what companion is in, in like some small way. So it's just there it's just it seems so ambitious in a dangerous way. Um, and I think it's happening during current events. This would have been a really good time for a home run, and I don't know that this was it.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, let's talk about Companions, because, you know, everyone's blowing up about Companions, and, you know, I'm hearing a lot of stuff, which to me sounds, frankly, a little bit hyperbolic. People saying, you know, like, um, crokies, for example, notable arena player crokies making the hot take that Loris is the new Oko. And then not just him, I mean, many entrenched magic players just saw today, or very recently, Sam Black, another luminary of the game, wrote an article basically saying that companions are the most broken magical mechanics since phyrexian mana which is another really strong take and it's interesting to me maybe i'm maybe i'm just not theoretically as deep as as some of these other players maybe i haven't been playing magic for long enough maybe i just haven't played against these companions enough my initial take at least for standard anyway, it was certainly not that these companions are just gonna come in and ruin everything. I can definitely see if you're a legacy player or a vintage player, someone who plays eternal formats, just like having like this quadratic expansion of what's possible in magic and just being like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I can I can definitely imagine that um i i I, one of the things that i'm interested to dive into and of course we're not going to solve it today but just one of the things that i'm most interested about is how a companion is going to play out in standard because i think that you know that they were designed definitely not just with standard in mind but i think standard is definitely like the the place where they were probably tested the most
1: I think it's going to scare us the most eventually that they were only tested in standard. Yeah, it could be (laughs) when they still, if they break the thing that they were most tested for, then, then I think a lot of what we're talking about is probably accurate. (laughs) There are probably a lot of disconnects going on, but at the same time, yeah, like that's where we're, it doesn't matter if like at the ultimate, like we're talking about theory, we're talking about uh, issues with like the macro picture at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if R and D prints out uh, like, 249 shopping carts and you have to go race other magic players at grocery stores, like whatever they decide is magic. If you want to be good at magic, that's what you've got to learn and be good at. So yeah, let's transition to actually talking about how they affect the games and how they can inform people who want to win magic games, how to win standard magic games, whether they're broken or not.
0: Right. Well, uh, this is what I'm thinking. It's like, I look at these and one of the things that I wonder is, are companions the New Planeswalkers, right? Okay. So I think when Planeswalkers were introduced to the game, there was a lot of this similar hyperbole like, oh my, this is broken. These cards are more powerful than any cards have ever been. This is going to change the face of magic. Is it going to be for the better or for the worse? And you know, it's funny how you still get people to this day kind of making those arguments, and and these established Magic players basically being like, "Well, back in my day, we didn't have a you know, Jace, <laughs> Jace the Mind Sculptor coming and ruining my game of Magic or whatever." Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the, it's the mag- make Magic great again contention. Yeah, where yeah, they all exactly. This imaginary time that it was amazing, and they just project out onto the world no matter the cost
0: yeah you know you're like magic was perfect in 99 why did they have to go and ruin it kind of a thing you know but so this is what i'm wondering is like are companions just a new card type that are here to stay that we're gonna see a lot more of And here's the thing about Planeswalkers, you do see them in a lot of decks, right? Like if you sit down, you take take apart the average magic deck these days, it's probably more likely to have a Planeswalker, one or more Planeswalkers in it than not. However, there are plenty of decks and archetypes that don't have room for them and that don't benefit from them. And so I'm kind of wondering if that's the new positioning. Like if we're gonna start to see commanders in each set being definitely among the most powerful cards in the set, among the most defining cards in the set, cards which, you know, every deck running those colors has to consider whether they're going to play one or not. Like, what, what do you think about that comparison?
1: I think the comparison is appropriate in terms of sort of trying to understand the history of how people respond to how invested players respond to uh, like new ideas and things like that. And most of the time, I think it's overblown. In this case, I think it's a little closer than I'm comfortable with. And the reason being is, is that Planeswalkers in their initial iteration, as uncomfortable as people were with them, they really, they were so few and they slotted so automatically and they were so, they just couldn't have gotten what they wanted to do better. I think that's where the comparison breaks down because I think these are cards that I think when you plus two Jace Bellerin and then Wrath and then see the impact that it has on a game, your brain grows a little bit. Whenever you start with a card in your hand each game, and if it's provable that just having access and, and that's what we do honestly in the modern magic age like r and d takes a you know month's year to get something out, and then we break it as a giant like an ant colony as fast as so i mean that's going to happen we're going to find out if we don 't already which one of these things is the absolute best card to start with What is the all time black lotus of this? format state that we stand in now and people are already working on that and they're going to solve that. And I think that experiential quality, the fact that it's going to be so much of a different experience before our first interaction with planeswalkers, I think ultimately this is going to be a lot more problematic and whether or not they would continue with this later. I don't know. I would presume this would be like a now and again thing, like, like, I don't know, like vehicles or something. I don't know. I don't know what their thinking is with it beyond just make standard more commander-like or whatever, um, which is another mistake. Uh, and so I think these are going to do poorly enough that I hope it's a little bit of a, a wake-up call that not every not everything new that people are uncomfortable with is bad. But at the same time, whenever, you, again, like when, whenever you just had Oko or like you haven't earned the benefit of the doubt lately, like you need to rein those systems in. You don't, you know, we just, we did Smuggler's Copter. Like, uh, if you think of like the main innovations the last several, uh, years, last several standard seasons, there are just this trademark of every single new mechanical weird attempt at new magic, whether it's energy or in Etherworks Marvel or it's, um, uh, vehicles with Smuggler's Copter, they're... And even on back to like Affinity, Umazawa's Jeet, there are so many cards that as soon as they take up the, this is going to be a new way we play Magic, that brand new thing has to go against 25 years, hopefully, of learned lessons that it's not scrutiny to. So they just, they don't know what they're doing with it. And then, so I think that's probably going to be more of this.
0: Yeah. Well, and I I think that you just made a really good point that regardless of of you know, whether Mutate ends up being too complicated of a mechanic or whether companions end up being too broken or whether the introduction of a whole existing other fantastical intellectual property into magic was too much. I think it's just that having all of those things in the same set, especially in this kind of rarefied air of magic players already being kind of skeptical and feeling uneasy about the game... I agree. It's just it's 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 a lot, you know. Any way you look at it, it's a lot. Even if you're loving everything that's going on right now, it's still a lot. You know, it's like you look at these spoilers and it's overwhelming. It's like I I just I feel like the amount of like sensory input from this set is is like borderlining on too much, you know. And
1: see if you are in the building and you're being introspective, if you're a part of if if something inside you inside your brain or your experience or your creative instinct, if you're Mark Rosewater and you are looking to, um, continue to like make things go the, go better direction. And you'll see this and you'll go, wow, we couldn't have obviously foreseen the world events that are happening, but like you have to be aware that. The, some of these mistakes, this overwrought set with all this stuff and all these words and all these new ways of like, whatever, we're at a time where people's brains want less. Like this doesn't make me want to turn off the news and play magic. Like it makes me want to not read anything that just overrides my brain. I'd rather play like Tetris or something. You know what I mean? Like, so the one thing I think you just can't do is like, look at this and go, Oh, we couldn't have seen this coming. And then you sort of use whatever as a crutch, like, Oh, it was a bad time. Nobody was ready for it. And so I just really hope that some of the lessons, I hope this is like the, the intervention U-turn moment because I really have given a lot of benefit of the doubt to Renton over the years, but this set really concerns me, and I'm not one to be concerned about these things, so take that as you will, but I don't know, at the end of the day, we've got to play Magic at some point, so I don't know, tell me how to win at Magic cards. Even if they're busy, even if, they're, even if they have the word companion on them, even if they have the word mutate and a bunch of other words in parentheses, I ha- we have to figure out how to win at Magic games, or else, you know, what are we doing, so. All that said, let's talk, let's talk standard.
0: So here we are, and we're trying to figure out like, you know, what's going on in the standard format. Now, of course, companions are a huge part of the equation here. And what I've done is I've pulled together just like a handful of decks, which I think exemplify some of what's going on in standard right now that we can talk about. So we're going to get to that. First of all, I just wanted to highlight a handful of cards that I think are really have seen a huge uptick in relevance in this standard, which I think will tell you something about the format. So let's just get into this a little bit. The first card, which really raised my eyebrows for this set for standard, and I think for a lot of formats, to be honest, was Heartless Act. Now, this is, um, you know, a lot of people are comparing this card to Doomblade. It's definitely has taken the slot as like the modern, inexpensive, Mostly unconditional black removal spell, and it's had a little, it's been a little while since we've had one of these. I guess the last one was um cast down, that's it. So, so yeah, but so Heartless Act, uh, let's just read this card. It's it's one and a black, instant, and it's uh, destroy target creature with no counters on it or remove three counters from is it a permanent? I should, it's creature
1: I it's my favorite thing about this card It's talking about why is it only creature like
0: okay anyway, so there you continue. go it so it's only creatures
1: i still got into i'm sorry i still took us into design shit
0: <laughs> yeah you know wouldn't it be cool wouldn't it be cool if this card could finish off a planeswalker that would be amazing yeah i'm, I'm interested in like whether we're gonna see an uptick in controlling strategies and standard um you know as a result of this card being printed like do, do you think that we're gonna see kind of m- more of these black decks running removal such as this maybe running like hand disruption like agonizing remorse and trying to get there that way
1: well a lot of what's going to happen is going to be the fallout from whatever top down sort of deck building people feel like they can get away with with some of these companion cards like you have to ask yourself sort of what is the deck building cost of putting of a card that I just have access to all the time. And so much of that is nothing or close to nothing. It's sort of incidental. It's like a why not thing. So it asks for such a low cost in deck building. And the cards are going to be so generally powerful that I think you're going to have to like rely on disruption. Like the, um, agon- is it agonizing... The, my, the the two mana thoughtseize yep. yep, yeah, like card, yeah, yeah, agonizing remorse, yeah, yeah, agonizing remorse. So so you're going to have a prevalence of those cards just because you're going to need all the removal you can. If we get to this inbred metagame where people have found the best you know couple companions, and you have to have whatever the removal spell du jour is to deal with them on site, so that you can stick yours or whatever. So I think it's like those control aspects when people have access to a card basically one time whenever they want it is going to be a much a much much bigger effect that people are going to need access to in this world
0: yeah i agree i think we're going to see a lot of these in sideboards i think it's going to be a main deck inclusion in a lot of places one of the things that interests me is that now we're going to see this tension i think so in the previous format people might have brought in a card like murderous rider for example um, just because it's a it's a very versatile answer to a lot of different problems in the format, so heartless act might actually be vying for that same slot. And one of the challenges of it is that because it cannot hit planeswalkers, you end up with this tension, right? So I just think I I think like how good heartless act ends up being in this format is going to tell you a lot about the format. Now a lot of people have been saying that you just can't run removal like this anymore because standard has too much value in it and taking out any individual creature is just not really where you need the focus of your game plan to be you can't afford to just spend a card on doing that but i still i just look at a card like heartless act and it just looks so powerful to me it's like you know it's like if they reprinted fatal push would you really not play that in standard and yeah
1: right right you know yeah. and,
0: and i'm not saying that heartless act is as good as fatal push but it's just like it it, it asks that question to me
1: i just think it has like we're a couple of, people are just i think missing the i think that's a little reductionist like when you talk about the value oriented folks in general as a general rule yeah like if the, if everybody's playing eternal witnesses then yeah you're, you're cast down or whatever is it's ridiculous like you can't play magic that way however it's also not the what the world we're looking at right now isn't the status quo. This is a brand new mechanic with brand new implications, and I think it's a mechanic that encourages wanting to get shit off the field as much as possible. Because, like, if if you can stick your quote unquote companion, you know, whatever Lin City is going to end up being in this in this mess, then like, it's the only thing you have to do strategically is to make sure that they don't have theirs. So if we devolve into that, which I hope we don't, but if you're a competitive player, be willing to play spells that 80% of the time or over the last... 80% of the time over the last several years, you wouldn't play it. But I mean, like, look at Priest of Forgotten Gods. Like, there are all kinds of cards, where this is 100% a real magic card to have in your hand.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, exactly. And even even cards from, you know, the previous format, which is still very strong, like Mayhem Devil, right? It's like you need to get that thing off the board, man. And if Heartless Act is the way that you do it, you know, oh, let's look at Laris of the Dream Dan, right? Perfect example. That's a creature where you just cannot afford to let your opponent keep that on the board. And so maybe you decide, all right, you know, even though I'm essentially going down a card to kill that, that's just a trade that I need to make.
1: Right. And and the thing is, is if we get if you can get a reasonable effect that can reliably sort of serve you in that way, then that's fine. Then yeah, you, you'd rather play the value thing than the card that's just answer something and then you've both, you know, mulled the six or however the tempo plays out. But, but that's not all the time. And this may be one of those cases where it's just, that's not all the time. Sometimes you're, like, maybe you don't have access to the ravenous chupacabra you want. Or, maybe chupacabra costs four at sorcery speed and that's just, that's not how you need to beat the mirror because you're playing the the solve deck everybody else is playing. There's a lot more nuance than just saying, oh, people play value creatures, you can't play this shit anymore. That's 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 not useful information.
0: Yeah, I agree. Alright, cool. So now let's move on to our next card here, which is graph Digger's Cage. Now, this card has actually emerged as being a surprisingly relevant card in the face of a number of other cards which are currently popular in the format. So let's read what this one does. It's an artifact, it costs one generic mana. And it has two simple but beautiful lines of text on it. It says creature cards can't enter the battlefield from graveyards or libraries. And players can't cast cards in graveyards or libraries. So the fact that this card is currently good in standard should tell you a little bit about what's going on. I was actually just reading a post on R Spikes from an Esper Mage who was saying that they reached Mythic by main decking three copies of Graf Digger's Cage. So I, I, I think that that's pretty telling. Now, let's talk about some of the cards that Graf Digger's Cage shuts down. Um, among other juicy morsels, Graf Digger's Cage hits a number of companions. It hits Laris, So Laris can no longer cast things from your graveyard if you have Graf Digger's Cage out. It also hits Garuda, Garuda can no longer do its crazy shenanigans of returning stuff from the graveyard to the battlefield, which is basically the only way that, it, that you win in a Garuda deck. Um, this also shuts down Winota, believe it or not. We're going to talk about her a little bit later on, but, but Winota basically yanks uh, humans from your deck and puts them onto the battlefield attacking. This card actually shuts Winota down as well. And then it also just shuts down all of your escape shenanigans. So we've got Oro, you know, the Titans, both the Titans, Oro, shuts down Croxa. And it also shuts down the cat, right? So you can't do the cat oven thing anymore. It's just like, what doesn't this thing do? I mean, I, I love it, you know? So so anyway, yeah, Graph Digger's Cage... Awesome, awesome card. Definitely a good idea to have in your sideboard, if not just jamming them in your main deck. Um, another card which I think is going to fulfill that same category here is Mystical Dispute. Now, this isn't a new card, and, and neither is Graft Digger's Cage, actually, but, uh, you know, we hadn't seen much of it in a while. But Mystical Dispute, just, you know, this good old uh, two and a blue, and it's a counter-target spell unless its controller pays three, and if it's a blue spell... You can cast it for just a single blue. So um, why is this card so good right now? Well, I think you know, a lot of the reason is just that you you have a lot of people trying to cast these greedy blue spells right now. So let's talk about some of the things that gets hit by mystical dispute. Again, Garuda you know, six mana companion. Someone's going to tap out for it and try to slam it as soon as they possibly can. Mystical Dispute's just going count to counter that for the, the shocking price of one blue mana. So that seems like a pretty good deal to me. Um, when you're, So if you're running these in your deck and your a Garuda opponent knows that you have them, they have to start playing off curve, right? They have to start trying to leave up their own Mystical Dispute. They just have to figure it out because... You can't tap out on turn you know five or maybe even four, however fast you're trying to get your Garuda out. You, just, you cannot tap out and have your opponent be able to leave up Mystical Dispute. It's just too big of a tempo loss. Other notable cards that get hit by Mystical Dispute, especially in this new set, we've got Nars at four, gets hit by it. A lot of the ultimatums get hit by it. So we have, there's the Jeskai Ultimatum. There's the Sultai Ultimatum. There's the Tima Ultimatum. They all get hit <laughs> by Mystical Dispute. And so, again, if you're tapping out for one of those bad boys and you get disputed, you're gonna feel pretty bad about it.
1: Dude, I don't care what this set contains. It can have like it can have like pornographic cards. I don't care. If I ever get to Mystical Dispute a just sky ultimatum it will all have been worth it i don't care what <laughs> i don't care what happens to magic afterward like that means it's that's my retirement plan right yeah yeah that will could, feel
0: incredible you could just dust off your shoulders you know oh. pour yourself a scotch <laughs> if
1: that's a, if that's not a reason to play magic through any amount of turmoil i don't know what is
0: indeed Indeed. So um, another card which is seeing a decent amount of play right now is the the Sharknado, the Shark Tornado. That's another just nice little six mana blue spell that you can mystical dispute.
1: You know, that card, sidebar on that card, somebody, that, that seems to me like some trapped prisoner of the process, like sending us an SOS through creative. Like the fact that somebody put a jumping shark in the set that people are like jump the shark or That's
0: whatever. That's it. That's it. I feel man. like
1: somebody is hiding in a closet captive in R&D and is trying to communicate with us that they know this some of this was <laughs> ill timed and awful.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, we we may be living in a set which has truly jumped the shark. <laughs> 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 I know the 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 meta perfection of that is just incredible. So so anyway, Mystical Dispute was good, still good. You might consider main decking that card. Let's move on to another main deck card, which probably shouldn't ought to be a main deck card, but it does have to be a main deck card, unfortunately, and that is Ether Gust. This card is, you know, if not as good as it ever was, probably a little bit better than it ever was. And so, yeah, Aethergust... Again, just able to gain you so much tempo against some of the relevant cards that are being cast. Uh, let's talk about those, like Winota, for example. You can gust your opponent's Winota, and that's going to leave them with probably a bunch of dorky, like one, you know, one-one soldiers or whatever. You know, it can still hit a lot of the stuff in the red-black sack deck. Um, it can. It can also hit three of the ultimatums, right? So again, getting your ultimatum gusted is going to feel, you know, approximately as bad as getting it Mystical Disputed. So there is that. And then, of course, it's just still good against all the stuff it used to be good against in the format. People are still playing Nyssa. If people start playing the, the new Vivian, uh, you're going to start Ethergusting that as well. So I just think, yeah, Ethergust still as relevant as it ever was.
1: One of the last time we talked, we talked so much about the play patterns of standard and how they're starting to emulate how we typically associate modern format play patterns. These cards, being like when you start seeing cards that are just really, really high risk deck slot stuff under most conditions, like Graph Digger's Cage, like Ether Gust, when you see very pointed cards like that, that's an indication that the power level of the format has gone to such a modern type of place that it is worth more to give up an actual deck-building slot in Game 1 than it is to have these other cards that are just so absolutely powerful and dominant get unchecked. So that's the thing that really harkens back to where you were talking last time we talked about how much this format can feel like Modern.
0: No, totally agree. Because, yeah, when the cost of not running it main deck is higher than the cost of running it main deck, you know you're living in a somewhat warped format, right? So when you have to bring in such conditional answers, just because getting blown out by, you know, the big threats is, is so disastrous. So, but you know, that's the world that we're living in right now. And so, you know, basically your options are either to just try to be too quick and go under or to just try to get there anyway, or to main deck answers, right? Those are kind of your, those are kind of your three choices that you can do. Lastly, I just want to highlight the cards that exile are going to be very important in this format. And so we're talking about agonizing remorse. We're talking about cry of the carnarium uh, scorching Dragonfire, I think is still going to be a very relevant card. And I just think that yeah, exile removal is it's just very, very key at the moment because there are so many graveyard shenanigans going going on. So if you decide not to run Graph Digger's Cage in your 60 or in your 75, you might just consider running some of these other exile cards to try to get your edge that way.
1: And it's interesting too that these oh, a lot of these cards are costing less than Ashiok. The fact that Ashiok comes off as such a powerful graveyard type hate effect, but you can't really wait that long and people are winning with grafters cage main deck is really another indication of just how crazy powerful the effects in this format are
0: yeah that's a really good point and also like you just don't necessarily want your your graveyard hate to be stapled to a permanent that can get uh, easily killed right yeah so, exactly you know it's like if you resolve your ashiok three your opponent might just remove it and then just keep going on with their graveyard shenanigans
1: and the uh, and then the inbred cycle continues because, like we're saying, like we're talking about, we just talked about mystical dispute, ether gust, both cards for which Grafdigger's cage does not suffer from. So
0: right, right,
1: Ashiok has more issues.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So just keep that in mind. Or like, you know, if you're like running your general Kudro. And you're thinking that that's going to solve all of your issues. You know, it's like it's, it's a helpful card for sure. But I think that your plan needs to be a little bit more resilient than that. So um, so keep an eye on that. Now now that we've covered some of those that kind of lay the groundwork for the format, let's start talking about some decks. I've, I've got like a lineup of just a handful of decks here, which I think are really highlighting some of the things that are happening with the format. So let's get started with this big bad boy, Garuda, who we've mentioned a number of times. So, um, yeah, let me let me bring this card up and so I can read it. Garuda, Doom of Depths. So this is a 6-6, six, six, and it costs four, and then uh, either blue-blue, black-black, or blue-black, whichever you choose to, to pay. So six mana total. And it's a 6-6, six, six, and it's a companion, and the stipulation is your starting deck contains only cards with even converted mana cost, which is a pretty steep cost by the way. And it says when Garuda Doom of Depths enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. Put a creature card with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. So note that you can actually yank your opponent's creatures with this card as well. Happens fairly often. So We've been seeing these decks that kind of turbo Garuda decks and basically all they are is just ramp Garuda as your companion um, probably running three of a main deck as well and spark double and so what you're trying to do is resolve your Garuda as quickly as possible. You're trying to put your own spark double into the graveyard bring it to the battlefield, copy Garuda, then you get another trigger, and you're trying to just chain into as many spark doubles as you can. And then these decks will also run, you know, your choice of other kind of enter the battlefield cards. Maybe you try some Agents of Treachery, or, you know, maybe you try uh, Broodmoth, right, to to, uh, protect your big board that you've generated because you know you don't want to just like you don't want to go off with garuda get this massive army of seven sevens and then just get them uh board swiped swept the next turn anyway so that that's this is kind of like people's first take in the format on garuda uh what do you think about this what do you think about this style of deck do you think that garuda is like not the -the over-the-top kind of Win on the spot deck that you want to be trying to do in the format.
1: This is the best. This is probably as close as I've seen uh, with in a form- format where you can play like stuff like Niv Mizzet Reborn. Like it's, I, I struggle to think like it's like the crazy top end of what's possible. But that's a different discussion. I think. I mean, like if you want, you know, it, the the more useful discussions for grinders, I'm sure. Like, I don't know. I'm sure that like you can't do wrong with some of these. Like really, like. Um, the Black-White Companion. Like I mean, these cards are going to be insane, and these things people are doing with them are insane. But I would want to go bigger. And so this is a good place to start, I think. But if I'm going down this road, if I want to be playing just absolute madness in in a format like this, which you don't get to do all the time, um, this is a good place to start. But I think I would want to be more ambitious.
0: Yeah, I agree. So you know, it's like I'm looking down this deck list So this is YoMan 5's build. He he made a Garuda Bantramp build. His deck is running... Let's just go down the list of of payoffs that he's running because his deck's basically... He's got his one Garuda companion. He's got the other three in the deck. He's running four Thassa, four Spark Double, four God Mage, Elite God Mage, four Charming Prince. He's also got two Umari the Collector, two Dream Trawler... And two Endray's Forerunners, right? And then, of course, some Mana dogs. So basically what he's uh, trying to do here is he's got this kind of hybrid of like the go-off-on-one-turn Garuda thing with like this Azorius blink package, which people have been playing. And it is interesting how we're in this place where the idea of either making, like, an army of Garudas on turn four or five or maybe slamming a Garuda into an Raise Forerunners or a Dream Trawler or something like that, is just, like, the fact that that's not necessarily the most impressive thing you can be trying to do in the format on turn four or five really says something, you know? <laughs> really tells you something about where we're at.
1: Spark Double seems like Spark Double to me is the card that fi- the clone that finally like like we've had Metamorph, we've had a lot of these like sort of clone effects, but this one is so flexible that even though the mana cost is you know it's clone, like that's a neighborhood I want to be into. Like this is part. <laughs> this is part of what whether however you feel the fabric of this format is in these kinds of cards. I think.
0: Yeah, and trying to exploit them, you know, it's like yeah. This nobody's formats, winning
1: with Thaliaism. You know what I mean. Like right. nobody's playing that magic here. You need to. It's really like Gaga crazy show off. Like, I mean, companion is not a subtle mechanic. They like the this when you want to look for a good direction competitively in like what they sort of designed or had in mind for a format. It's always good to look toward the mechanics, and there's not a less. Suggestive mechanic than companion that says, "Look, we want you to play commander and standard, so you may as well embrace that aspect of it, and then see how in inci- because a lot of these the companion quote unquote costs. I mean, like Sam said, we're we're looking at Frexian mana type quote unquote costs. The way that paying one life on a fetch land is a quote unquote cost. You know what I mean? Like all these have quote unquote costs that just don't matter. They just give you restrict the quote like they give you enough restriction to just make your creativity that much more easy to access and to find the you know what I mean? Instead of having a whole breadth of combos, you could discover, Oh look, I I only can use this card anyway. So then you pull that up on gather and your deck, you know, is going to do well. So that's a good place to be.
0: Yeah. This is one of those decks where you look at it and you're like, bummer, man, I guess I can't play to fairy. Right. And that's kind of the end of your complaint. So we have this Garuda archetype. Let's, t- let's look at Karuga the Macro Sage. This is another um, companion, which has been in kind of an easy slot in right into the format. So Karuda a 5-4, 3 generic mana, and 2 Simic. So either green-green, blue-blue, or blue-green. 5 CMC total so karuga says companion your starting deck contains only cards with converted mana cost three or greater and land cards when karuga the macro sage enters the battlefield draw a card for each other permanent you control with converted mana cost three or greater so some of the more competitive among us perhaps i could say some of the less creative among us have decided to just jam this with the existing Jeskai fires decks in standard which is a totally relevant thing that you can do. I mean, this card is very good. That deck is very good. In some ways, there's no reason not to try it, right? So um, that's kind of a relatively normal thing that we've seen people doing with Karuga. Now, I think that that's hardly the limit on what Karuga could accomplish in this format. I think that there's a lot of unexplored design space Fires really is one of the main ways to get around that stipulation, right? So what what this is saying is, no, you're not going to be ramping on turns one through three, but after that, you're just going to be slamming haymaker after haymaker after haymaker, you know to a turn, basically for the rest of the game and so You know, the the idea of this deck is basically to just try to control the board a little bit in the early turns by casting Deafening Clarion, by casting Brazen Borrower, uh, Bonecrusher Giant. These are all cards that you can actually play in this deck, believe it or not. And then, you know, once your fires comes down, then, you know, you're kind of off to the races there. And anytime you're running out of gas or you need an extra big threat on the board, you can just slam down your Karuga, which uh, incidentally you know like even if you don't have the blue mana to cast it you can just still jam it if you have a fires out
1: yeah it that I wanted to highlight too when you were talking about the creatures it's so like the you exploiting the adventure synergy because you're allowed to play cards whose adventures are whatever cost you want that's a great what like that's such a great deck building subversion like that's a great way to cut around corners where R&D obviously like wanted you to mess with, but to push it and get as much out of it as you can, that's a great way to look for places to gain edges in deck building.
0: Totally. No, I I totally agree. Now, one of the things that interested me about, I'm looking at this, um, and by the way, I'm referencing Covert Go Blue's article here. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Covert Go Blue, friend of the podcast. Excellent. Cool stuff. Yep. A Cool Stuff Ink writer and um, just good guy all around. Or colleagues, but, in
1: fact. How about that?
0: So, um, so he he picked out this Matthew Fuchs uh, Karuga Jeskai Fires deck. Uh, and I think that this deck's kind of interesting because it it is a bit of a different take. So let's let's look at what's happening in here. He's uh, This deck's running two Brazen Borrower, two Kenrith... Four Bone Crusher Giant, four Cavalier of Flame, four Sphinx of Foresight. So uh, that's the creature package. Notably, uh, no Blue Cavaliers, no Dream Trawlers, no, none of that kind of business. So this is, uh, as far as the creature package is concerned, I consider this to be like a fairly toned down version like it's it's fairly lean on the threats as far as these decks are usually concerned and in the place of some threats it's running to Narset of the Ancient Way so this is the new uh Jeskai Planeswalker that we've got in this set and I just think that this is really interesting so I'm going to read this card for you Narset of the Ancient Way one blue red white so four cmc total this is a four loyalty Planeswalker And uh, when it comes down, um, you can plus one it. And plus one is you gain two life, add blue, red, or white, and spend this mana only to cast a non-creature spell, which is kind of not that amazing in this deck, right? Like, this is not a card I would have initially tried to slot into a deck that A, is trying to cast spells without spending mana, and B, that doesn't actually run that many non-creature spells. Um, So, plus one's not amazing, but I think the reason this is in the deck is for the minus two ability. So the minus two is draw a card, then you may discard a card. When you discard a non-land card this way, Narset of the Ancient Way deals damage equal to that card's converted mana cost to target creature or planeswalker. So I think that Narset's basically in the deck to try to dispose of your extra fires of invention, or to also dispose of your Deafening Clarions if you're in like a, a Creature Light matchup. Um, maybe even to pitch a Teferi that's not going to be relevant on the board, like if you need a, a removal spell instead of just a, another Teferi. So, I, I think that that's really the main reason that Narset is in the deck. Because, again, you're probably not going to go for her ultimate. Her ultimate's minus six. You get an emblem with whenever you cast a non-creature spell. Is emblem deals two damage to any target. That is really not what this deck's trying to do.
1: It's flavor text.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. So, I just, like, what do you think about this? I... I Clearly, this is doing something in this deck, but I just think that it's odd that you're running a Planeswalker that literally has, like, one mode in yeah. a, a deck that just has not that many non-creature spells.
1: Yeah, like I said, it's, it's new, but I don't know. Traction is going to be huge. Like, I think that's probably the concept. This concept has changed a few times, but as it's become, I mean, people basically just call it modern now. The idea that you have to, aside from maybe like the cat deck or whatever, where the the old Trail of Crumbs type setups, like that's the closest we've come to like old sort of set up your, your pieces magic. But like Uro magic and this sort of companion stuff is very like, get on the board, stick your stuff and get away. And maybe just that sort of pseudo one and a half modes this card is privy to here like maybe that's enough maybe just a couple of copies where you were really, like or have the ability to really dig in and spread your threats wide and diversely i mean i don't know like i don't i'm just trying to think of something that would end up better here for this slot and i think this is probably fine
0: yeah i i think that Noss it's a little bit of a toolbox card so it's like if you need to cycle a card it draws you a card Um, if you need to, you know, if you need to deal with a problematic blocker or a problematic opponent's planeswalker, Narset kind of deals with that issue as well. Who knows? Maybe you need to gain a little life, right? Um, so, but I, I just, I, I find this an interesting inclusion and one I'm definitely going to have to keep my eye on as the format. I would definitely,
1: I would definitely look at this card as one of the first two, sort of try other things in place of but at the same time uh if just because it sort of like looks a bit off kilter like things play a lot different than we sort of plan sometimes so it may be just it may have secret abilities quote unquote just in the nature of being a planeswalker that can come down fix colors well or whatever at the turn after you play Teferi or whatever there so don't think you have to get rid of it just because it sort of looks awkward but definitely definitely put it on the bench if you have other ideas first
0: yeah yeah it's a flex spot in the deck I would say for sure um, all right now let's talk about one of the other main players in this format right now which is the Luris companion so this is um, this is a cat nightmare and judging from the outcry in the magic community it does seem to be kind of a nightmare in general at the moment. So I'll read this one off. So this costs one Ozov, Ozov. So one and then either white, white, black, black, or black, white. Three mana total. So this is a companion. Each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less, which admittedly is a pretty big stipulation, right? Let's just stop and appreciate the fact that this is basically preventing you from playing anything in your deck That costs three CMC or greater unless that thing is specifically an instant or a sorcery card. This also has lifelink, it's a 3-2 by the way. And during each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell. So it has to be a spell. You can't like replay uh, you know, fabled passage or something. During each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard, I think that this might be one of those cards that R&D thought, well, the stipulation is strong enough that, you know, we can just go ahead and print this and it'll be fine and standard at least, right? And, you know, immediately the hive mind has gotten to work on trying to bust this card. And so, the aforementioned Crokey's put together a version of this deck, which is basically it's it's reminiscent of the Rakdos sac decks of recent and but it does have a few twists on it so let's and and some new cards in it which is cool so let's look at what this deck is it's running loris as the companion and that's the only copy by the way not running any loris in the in the main deck and then the deck is for cauldron familiar for Dreadhorde butcher for croakser titan of death's hunger for priest of the forgotten gods for Rix Marty reveler which is a card we haven't seen much of in standard lately for Serrated Scorpion, this is one of the new cards. For Whisper Squad, another one of the new cards. And then Sorceries, it's got Call of the Death Dweller, which is a, a new bring stuff back from the graveyard. Claim the First Bomb, which we're all familiar with intimately. Uh, <laughs> it's running a Maya's Grasp as like the only just dedicated removal spell. One copy in the deck. And it's also got four witches Oven. So this, this is kind of, a, as I read down this list, this reads like an interesting combination of a couple of different rack sack archetypes that we've seen. I think, you know, Dreadhorde Butcher is an interesting inclusion as a card which looks like a fairly aggressive card, but which can also give you value when it dies. Uh, but this is also running Croak, a so Titan of Death's Hunger, which is a bit of a slower, a little bit more of a controlling card. And, you know, Priest of the Forgotten Gods is obviously like a kind of a slow, grindy, value-based card. So, I I, I don't know. This deck is... this is an interesting brew to me. Now, this is a, an event-winning deck, and it's also been piloted to number one on the ladder by crokies So, clearly, this deck is capable of hauling some freight. Uh, what, what is What are you thinking about when you look at this deck? The deck, this, once okay, there's a few things. One, I
1: think once again that it solves the companion, uh, quote unquote restriction actually solves the stipulation for deck builders. Uh, because where you'll, where you would want to be seeing this card without companion would, would be in like, how do I make this work with Mayhem Devil? Well, it's done all the work for you. You can't use Mayhem Devil. It's banned in the format of using this card in a deck. So then you get all those restrictions. You get, you look at your, um, Recto Sacrifice deck or whatever. And it, it basically self-builds, and then you have a few slots. This is why we're seeing Rooksmati Reveler, because it costs two. And so you get this sort of auto-build thing. I think this deck is kind of nuts. Um, I love the fact that this is a cat nightmare, because like people were already like sort of over the Cauldron Familiar play pattern, and thought we are just getting started. Um, so there's that. Um the biggest thing I'd be interested in, uh, and this I have nothing on um I have no data on this, okay? This is purely intuition. But it's intuition over a long period of magicking. So Dread Horde Butcher, like you said, really interesting card selection. I'd be really interested to have Stormfist Crusader get a shot in that slot, I think. I think that's gonna give you more velocity, a faster clock. You're not worried about the life loss, cause I mean, this deck has Life Link and the Cat and witch's Oven and all this stuff. So, I would be really interested if uh, Kroki's messed around with Stormfrist Crusader, what that what his experience was like. Maybe just that Haste is hauling more work than I think it is with uh, the companion with uh, ability. So, but I would at least be interested to uh, suggest and or hear from people who tried that out.
0: Yeah, I, that's that's I'm sure a card that he considered and definitely a card worth considering in the archetype i wonder if he decided that he likes the explosiveness of the butcher more uh maybe he's a bit more in on the sacrifice plan than on like the long absolutely yeah and it and it could be that he just feels like loris is his card advantage engine and maybe croaks is his card advantage engine and he doesn't need to do more than that
1: Yeah, but with the haste, you get that's the thing. Is like with Dreadhorde Butcher, there are no with the haste. There's just no, there's no foreplay. You're going, you're going to put this like ping clock on them that they have no answers to, which is all these like aristocrats sacrifice kind of. That's all these things want to do anyway. So that that definitely leads into it. But it was, it's definitely. I would consider it as a a sideboard inclusion because that's a lot of velocity for in a card that basically just gets to exist for free in this deck.
0: No, I, I totally agree, and, and definitely a card I would consider as well. One of the cards that was an eyebrow raiser for me in looking at this list was Whisper Squad. So this is uh, costs 1 black mana, it's a 1-1, and it has an activated ability, which isn't a tap ability, so you can do this as many times as you want. You can pay 1 and a black, and search your library for a card named Whisper Squad, put it onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. I mean... When I first looked at this card, I was like, this is just unmitigated garbage. <laughs> like, how how could a card like this possibly see play in standard? But I think if there's one thing that design has told me, especially recent design, it's like, we can see the sloth in standard, you know? we. I mean, there are so many cards I never would have thought that I'd end up playing against that here we are, right? And so... Now apparently, you know this isn't this isn't unprecedented in Magic. Apparently, there have been other cards like this in the past. You got your Squadron Hawks, etc. But I don't know. I'm still struggling with this one. It just seems it seems too tempo negative to me. It seems too low impact. What do you think about this card?
1: Uh, I think it's going to have niche uses uh, again, but I do think it's a byproduct of the companion restriction. This is like very obviously one of those slots that if the deck could do whatever it wanted and play with whatever it would play with something I think more interesting, but in terms of, in terms of just like being a body to, to die and to replace itself, I don't know. Like it it definitely has, it's got niche, you know, it's got some niche. I don't know if it's enough. It's just, I think it's just the, the paradigm is so interesting because the card so blatantly does less than like what the average standard spell or effect or whatever you want to call. Yeah, like it's obviously in that boat. But at the same time, if if you just if you have your slots just packed to the brim with power elsewhere and this thing will hold its weight over half the time and fits the bill, whatever. Especially since it trims your deck anyway. If I mean like what else your, the, the curve on this deck is so low by restriction that you're going to have that mana anyway, like, I don't know, having having a couple more bozos around to that may be enough, you know what I mean? So
0: Yeah, that that is a good that's a good reflection, right? Is that this is a little bit of flood protection, maybe. And yeah. I guess the idea that you could get it back from the yard with Laris and get another dude from your library in the same turn or something like that. Is you know mildly compelling. I just like. I yeah. tell you
1: what, it's not great against Digger's Cage.
0: Yeah, it, it so sure isn't.
1: Watch yourselves out there. <laughs> doesn't
0: doesn't survive the heads up against Ooh. that. Yeah, just another reason to run that amazing, beautiful, wonderful card. It's doing good work. The one drop spots in this deck are challenging to me. Like Serrated Scorpion is just another card where I think, is this really good enough for standard? Maybe second, I'm
1: all about this card. I am all about this. Yeah, card.
0: lay it on me. What's what's working for you with this card?
1: Okay, this card is yes on a on a vacuumery. It's it's dopery, but the way that the play patterns so often happen, especially in, um, with these sacrifice decks against decks that don't have like a a really relevant or like on hand reliable trampler, is you can just recur and bring back in perpetuity. Like, and so this is essentially just gets. In most limited decks, it'd be unplayable. But just because this is sort of the way this format has broken, and this this is essentially Cauldron Familiar five through eight, I think. I think yeah, you're, because you're going to be like Lurus is going to act as like the food sacrifice most of the time anyway, and so the cat at just drain and gain on one is usually sufficient enough to stabilize. I imagine getting a four swing like with two and two on each end of it is going to be that much more discouraging. So I think a little more than Whisper Squad, I think this card makes a lot more sense just in natural synergy. It doesn't belong 99.9% of the place of, of you know, of like this text is banned from most competitive magic, but in this deck, it's that 0.1%. You know, here's
0: what, here's what I'm struggling with, right? Is this is going to happen a lot with this deck, right? You're going to look at your opening hand it's going to be two to three lands, Whisper Squad, Whisper Squad, Serrated Scorpion, and then just like some random other dorky card, right? And like... And Loras. And Loras, right? So maybe that's enough. <laughs> that's the
1: question. Is it I enough? just
0: think like the number of like super garbagey hands that you're going to draw with this deck, it's, it's kind of hard for me to get behind. Like
1: how... How... Think how much more aggressively though you can mulligan when there's not a goddamn thing in your deck that costs more than two.
0: Yeah. Go to
1: one. Like, what difference does it make? (laughs) Mull to one. Yeah, I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, run it off the top. Whatever. Like, this is a deck that this is a deck, I'm going to say, like, whether you like modern play patterns, you know, that's none of my business, okay? But this is a deck that can probably mulligan, especially with a companion, unreasonably efficiently for, like, what they what, what I would think you would desire for a standard format in in it with any number of sets in it. Like this is
0: Yeah man. And,
1: this is a real mulligan-friendly deck.
0: And I guess Laris is your mulligan protection, right? So you've you've kind of got that going for you.
1: So in addition to the companion ability solving your deck building woes, it also made it to where you don't have to mulligan better. Like you can just keep mulliganing until you can you have real magic cards. So companion is an ability that is way 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 thicker than just the the rules text on what yeah
0: just just the face-up value of it well um i'm gonna have to see a little bit more of this deck i you know so in my first days of the ladder i had been trying a few brews but i also went through a period where i was feeling a bit uncreative and so i just decided to run my old teamer adventures deck on the ladder and I have to say that this deck does this Laris Rakdos sacrifice deck does not have a good matchup against Teamer Adventure. So
1: That does not surprise me. Yeah.
0: yeah. Just just being able to like double up all of your stomps and being able to, you know, oftentimes kill Laris on sight. Also um being able to get down like a giant, which none of their removal even remotely can touch. Um, these can all be real death knells for this deck. But you know, um, clearly it's performing. Clearly, it's good enough to to hold its own in standard. So I'll be curious to see how this goes moving forward. I've seen a as couple. As soon as I
1: st- as soon as I stop drafting, this will be the first deck I'll be working with. I think because I, I, I'm a, I'm a carryover from the sacrifice archetype, so I'm eager to see uh, how it goes.
0: Yeah uh definitely i mean loris was one of the cards that excited me when i looked at the spoiler for the set i was like i'm definitely going to be building around that it's just a cool card i mean any way you look at it it's it's cool i like the flavor of it it's clearly very powerful a lot of people think it's too powerful but i don't know for the moment for my experience of standard i'm gonna put the fun stamp on this i think loris is fun i'm glad it's here
1: yeah we can okay well like since I'm going to be on this deck, as soon as we get, we'll do before before we do another episode together, we can jam this deck some. I'll, I'll get this deck, and then you you can see if you think Loris is fun after a while.
0: Awesome. <laughs> All right.
1: And then we can switch, and you can you can play Loris. I'm eager to find out, man. Hey, I, sometimes if both players have skull clamp, fun magic happens. So we'll yeah. see what
0: happens. You know, one of the cards in Standard's got to be the most powerful one, right? Oh yeah, so. sure. You know that's just the way it has to break, and so I think that you know having a having a card like Loris be the most powerful and standard. I think you could have worse worse outcomes than that. I would rather play against Loris than Teferi. I'll, I'm just going to put that right out there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I would agree. I mean, it, yeah. There's more ways to, to kill Loris, and if you like, and they also like, I don't know. Companion uh, maybe in some ways Companion feels less bad than. 2 years of Tefiri play patterns. I don't know. I don't know. To be to be determined.
0: To be determined, right? Exactly. It's it's still too early, which is I'm on one the record. of the main points with all of this, right?
1: Oh yeah, I'm always I'm always with 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 that camp. Yeah. It's always you know? too early. Yeah, let's wait, get data, you know.
0: Okay. Before we go here, I just want to cover one mod deck which has been a lot of people have been playing and enjoying, which is the Winota deck. Now, Winota is another one of these kind of like, it's pretty much an all-in card. Like if you build a Winota deck, you know exactly what you're trying to do. So let's let's read this one. It's a four-four, it costs two generic mana, a red and a white 4 CMC, and it reads: Whenever a non-human creature you control attacks, look at the top six cards of your library. You may put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. It gains Indestructible until end of turn. Put the rest of the cards on the bottom of your library in a random order. So I think this is an easy card to underestimate. It's also an easy card to mistakenly think that Winota herself has to be attacking in order for you to get the trigger, which she does not. And so this this is, uh, it's not a companion, but it, it imposes like a companion-like deck building restriction on you, which is basically that half of your deck approximately needs to be humans and the other half needs to specifically not be humans and the other interesting thing about winota is that i think a lot of people who look at this card don't really think about the play pattern of like if i already have three plus non-human creatures cards on the battlefield when i resolve this it's basically you're looking at the top 18 cards of your library so this is one of those cards which I think a lot of people probably read it initially and didn't really consider all the implications. But this is yeah a that happens pal- a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I guess so, right?
1: It comes up from time to time. This is a card. Let me ask you this: How much, like, how great a sacrifice would you make? Okay, when you cast Collected Company to be able to do it more than one time when you did it. You know what mm, I mean? Yes. So it's like that's yes. that's you that's a lot of like win the game implication. So as soon as you can frame it in a reasonable way that's like okay, I understand this card, I understand I'm asking a lot of you, I'm giving you a lot of signals that's thinking making you think based on previous magic experience that whatever. But the truth is, if you get to do what you're trying to do, and the cost of doing it, because the cards are so good on their own, actually isn't as high as like Winota implies it is. You're not actually doing that much. You're just you're diversifying for her. But the cards are fine. Like Agent of Treachery is not an unplayable Magic card. Like it's insane.
0: Right. So, so l- yeah, let's look at the cards in this deck. Okay. So this version that I'm reading you is Jeskai guy Winota. And this is a version developed by Aaron. Well, uh, you know, maybe not developed by expressly, but version played by, tuned by Aaron Gertler. So, our friend Little Beep. So, he's running uh, in the main deck, he's got two Stonecoil Serpents, four Charming Princes, three Fibble Thips the Lost, four Bone Crusher Giants, four Legion War Bosses, four Elite Guard Mages, four Winotas, of course, three Agent of Treacheries, which is kind of the top end of the deck. And then he's also running uh, two Luka Coppercoat Outcasts as in his Planeswalker slot, and that's presumably to help him find either Winota or a late-game Agent of Treachery if he needs to. And then he's also running uh, as instance for Raise the Alarm. Now, uh, I raised my eyebrows when I first looked at this deck when I saw Raise the Alarm, because I thought, well, that makes humans, right? It actually doesn't. The the nope. tokens that it makes are just soldiers. That's the only that they type are. they have, yep. right? Yep. Yep. So yep. despite the fact that we all know they're humans and that the card even depicts two freaking humans, they are not actually humans, which is a, a bit of a flavor fail, but
1: it's a bit of an Aquaria. That's a very Aquaria level, like development. Like I'd be so <laughs> glad when like, that's the thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, but you're absolutely right. Like it's, so it's a really like sort of niche, unintuitive little thing.
0: Right. Exactly. So Winota really asks you to look at all of the cards in standard and get very granular about which ones are humans and which ones aren't, which, you know, this set in general is kind of pushing us in that humans versus non-humans direction. So The idea with this deck is something like you're going to cast one of these cheap non-human creatures one or more of them in turns one through three maybe you cast like a raise the alarm at the end of turn three and then on turn four you jam your winota and then you just send all of your non-humans into the red zone and you're you're ideally hoping to spike three agents of treachery off of this and just utterly annihilate your opponent's plan. You know, steal a blocker if they have one, steal two of their lands, something like yeah,
1: that. Yeah, yeah. For what yeah, I was gonna say, for what it's worth, it is not non-land permanent. Agent of treachery will take everything you own.
0: Yeah. Agent of treachery will take is Agent the only thing Agent of Treachery cannot steal from your board is a freaking emblem, right? So I mean <laughs> it's like it's pretty amazing to to get to slam one of these on turn four. Um, there are definitely, you know, so this deck has a high ceiling, right? This this is a deck where you can theoretically resolve three agents of treachery on turn four, which is nasty. But the flip side of this deck is, what if your opening hand is something like two raise the alarm, two agent of treachery, and three lands? You just, you can't be running a deck that does that. So this deck definitely has a lot of consistency considerations. And, and I think, I guess, it's running some Fibble Thips and some Charming Princes to try to help smooth that out a little bit. Do you think that a deck that's this focused and this kind of creature combo-y can actually get there in standard?
1: Yes, as long as it gets to do it enough times. The thing is, though, is like, what, the big thing I worry about this, about this deck, is although it has like a i mean all the creatures are reasonable they all they all value stuff which is you know the requirement to get on the standard ride so they have all that going for them the thing of it is is that she doesn't have companion which grants her less restriction in a way but because she's still being built with these restrictions and things i just I, i'm concerned just sort of on a basic data level if a card that is this combo centric that's built around a card you don't always have access to, versus the companions which you do. I'm just—it really has to be something really robust to make me not have the eighth card at the beginning or whatever. So I agree. That would be my concern.
0: Yeah, I I just feel like in the games when you don't draw Winota this is a very mediocre deck right yeah. like
1: that's the huge difference between her and, and these other decks it's exactly when you don't draw and you're always gonna draw in the other cases but not here
0: exactly and i mean okay it's it's not like ultra embarrassing i guess you could still slam like a big stone coil you could still just hardcast an agent of treachery you know legion warboss is a playable magic card right so so I I guess the only truly garbage cards in this deck um in a vacuum are raise the alarm. But it's, you know, no one's got like you nix the Winota from this deck, and this is like a tier three standard deck, right? I mean this is this this is a pile. If if you don't have Winota <laughs> out, this is just a hot pile.
1: Oh yeah. This is this is a like this is like a amazing draft deck that you moved all the ones to fours and got rid of the commons.
0: <laughs> exactly. Like it's a
1: bunch of rare cards.
0: <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And so, yeah, I just, I'm skeptical. Uh, call me a skeptic on a deck like this. And I think you're right that the companion thing just kind of raises the bar. And so if you're trying to do like a combo deck, which isn't a companion, boy, you've, you've got to really get your consistency down. And I don't know that this deck has that.
1: Yeah, it it's it's on the table. I think this deck has a lot of validity to it, but I yeah, it's just I, it's really hard to get over. I mean what I mean, aren't you sort of philosophically mulliganing every game you play yeah. <laughs> by playing a combo deck with uh, a non-Cabanian?
0: I was I was gonna say like I almost would consider putting the Sphinx of Foresight in a deck like this just because a it's a non-human and b it gives you those those scries at the beginning of the game just to you make are, sure you aren't the
1: right amount afraid you are the not enough magic players are scared of that opening hand you are the right <laughs> amount of
0: afraid man i just like i like i want that winota you know what i'm saying like i'm i'm willing to pay i will pay big in order to get that winota down on the field
1: this is so not the deck for you.
0: <laughs> no, no, I I agree. I'm I've been a skeptic from from moment one. You know, I
1: can't. Hey, raise. I just want to say something. Raise the alarm passes the value test. That's a two for one.
0: <laughs> okay. So technically, right. we
1: should allow it in the standard. Yeah. It was first Can- printed and mirrored in Mirrodin, and it's it is funny. It just no matter what, two humans, two or see. I did it. Right, two little uh, one ones at instant speed, just like. As long as they keep making it, it's going to, like, every six years, there's going to be some deck that just randomly is okay with that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, it's cool. Like, I love that decks like this exist. I love that we get these new niches in Standard where we do get to play these kind of junky cards like Thip, which you don't really see many of these days. Um, Here's something I learned about Fibblefip recently. I was thinking of Fibblefip as, like, the ideal mutate target in Standard and it doesn't even freaking work, man. No, you can't do that. Can which, which just really bothers me. So there's something, you know, if they want mutate to be viable and standard, they basically need to reprint Elvish Visionary stat, you know? And <laughs> well,
1: do we not have the... No, it was in Ixalan. There was the two-mana black one where yeah. he lost a life. But yeah, that's that's gone yeah. too.
0: So yeah, and until we have a two-drop 1-1 non-human that we can mutate onto... I'm really not sure that we you know we're gonna see like a massive amount of mutate in standard. I mean, it's it's working its way in a little bit, but I think that that's the notable exception at the moment in standard is Like, the companion thing's running wild. Everyone's trying that mechanic, right? And cycling, of course, you know, is there's there's plenty of cycling cards entering standard right now. So everyone's all about that, right? So the, the big one that's a little bit lacking at the moment is Mutate. And I think that that's principally why, is that we just, like you know because there are a lot of these decks like there are jeskai decks would love to be running Vadrog. but what jeskai deck is going to be wanting to you know apart from this one of course is going to be wanting to make a bunch of dorky non-humans right and the only reason that works in this deck is because you have the top end of winota right and so i don't know like i just i don't think that we're going to see that much mutating until we get some more really value driven cheap creatures
1: Yeah, well, like, Mutate, I don't know, like, I'm actually sort of secretly celebrating, because that's one of the things that could mitigate some of the complexity, density in this format in these sets is if Mutate just doesn't show up. And that's, you know, I mean, like, in a format with this many sets, with this many cards that are just absolute through the roof, I, you know, like, doing, tapping out for, like, this big sort of, like, strange chimeric effect, I don't know that it's... It may. It, I'll be interested to see how it does when uh, some when the older block leaves. Um, it has a better chance. But right now, I think like you're just screwing around when people are playing playing for keeps and doing business on the first turns and stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, the cool thing about having all of these interesting mutate creatures in the format is now Wizards has a number of sets in Standard to try to throw us a couple bones and, and make it a more playable archetype. So. I think we're probably you know with each new set that gets released we're just going to be able to look back on all of our cool mutate creatures and and see whether they're playable or not and it's got
1: a, there's a strange like paradox here where there's like there, it's a very commander feeling uh sort of mechanic. I would expect to find it in like a commander precon kind of release um, but because it is in it's it's so strange that we're it's a commander style mechanic and it's in the standard with the set that they're like really pushing this sort of commanderization type companion stuff but it still doesn't go very well that's very that's like it's a super odd phenomenon to me to see like I mean if it's if you make a mechanic and it's very commander centered and then standard becomes more commanderized but the mechanic still doesn't really go there it makes me really wonder about like sort of what the spirit what the goal of the mechanic was to begin with
0: yeah no I I totally agree and I think that it's just you know it's a new thing they're trying to make creatures cool again, and i I, ju- I think it's going to take a little while to catch on. and maybe they decide that it just you know was fun and limited. And you know we, we've had mechanics like that before, right? where it, it was yeah. all over limited. It was really fun. it was really cool. People think back on it fondly. didn't see much play in standard, and I think that's totally fine. you know i, I there's there's nothing wrong with that. But I definitely, I'm not going to count it out until until it's rotated, basically. Because I just think it's cool that they have these top-end cards, like Nethroi, right? Like Brokos, stuff like this. And they're just hanging out, and they're just waiting for just one good card to come along and synergize well with them, or just waiting for an archetype or for a meta to be right. Uh, maybe even we're just waiting for a tournament to be right. And so... I, I like having that. Like, I, I think that that's a value added for the format. And I think, quite frankly, if we were seeing all of these mythic mutate nightmares just dominating standard, I think it probably wouldn't be as fun. I think I people, agree. you know what I mean? It would just be like a yeah, uh, yeah. negative on this format. So
1: because then it becomes almost literally just commander play. Then you're getting too close to just like you're, you've created this like awful. Hybrid format, and they're both losing identity because of it. Now, like I think, companions, I probably too far. A lot of people, I think, think so, but at the same time, like this still has stand, We're still playing with cards that are two mana that do things. You know what I mean? We're not playing really, really out there, goofy, over the top magic at every turn. So I don't know. Hold on tight, I guess.
0: <laughs> Hold on to your butts. <laughs> <laughs> well. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the show, Danny. It's always a pleasure talking with you. There's always a deep well of things left unsaid because, you know, we, we can't spend all day and all night chatting. But um, thanks so much for joining us and uh, remind us where people can find you on the internet, Danny.
1: Oh, I love being hard to find, but uh, you can find me at Cool Stuff, Inc., where we found some of the deck lists we talked about today. Uh, I write for them and uh, if you're still in the market for magic cards i'm associated also with the fine organizations uh, in the philadelphia greater area of card titan and owl central all excellent excellent organizations
0: awesome i don't know all this has got me excited to actually go and play some limited so
1: (laughs) i'm actually going to draft as soon as i get off here
0: so there you go maybe maybe next time you come back on the show we can have a discussion about this limited format and how wacky it is
1: happy to do it
0: All right, right on, Danny. Take it easy. Later, man. And that's going to do it for this week. Next week, I'm excited to bring back another popular returning guest to the show and going to be getting more into the guts of Ikaria and Standard, which I know is what many of you really want to hear about. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation as well. And in the meantime, take a look in the show notes. There's always some good information referenced there, as well as the various ways that you can follow and support the show. And again, if you follow us on Twitter, YouTube, you can like our Facebook page, which I forgot to mention earlier. Join the Discord, give us a review on iTunes, and I shall surely at some point give you a $20 reward. All right, that's going to be all for this week, and look forward to catching you again next week.